I'm excited to dig into the Word of God with you this morning as we look at Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 1, and we will get there soon enough, I promise, but I, I wanted to rehearse some things with you in a, sort of an introductory kind of way. I wonder if you've ever wanted something so badly that you actually made yourself believe that you have it. Does that sound odd? Maybe not. Maybe a talent or a gift, or that is there anything there that really wasn't there that you thought is now there, or, or maybe that exists where it didn't before and really doesn't. It just exists in your mind. People do research this way, you know, all the time. They want a certain outcome so badly that they manipulate the research methods and interpret the raw data in a hev heavily biased way in order to get the results that they want, whether it's for their personal happiness or to achieve certain ends. I think maybe we've all been guilty of this to some degree, even if it's been unintentional on our part. Inventing an outcome by false means actually seems to be the order of the day in America, at least right now anyway. I think we've all certainly seen this on a national level. We all know about the Russia Gate and how a certain group of politicians tried their very best to expose Donald Trump when he was president for colluding with Russia. Do you remember that? And after, even after that was proved to be false, uh, they, they, uh, they had, and they had egg all over their face rather than admit uh, that uh, they were conniving. They rather carried on as if it was still true. What else? Well, there's no question in my mind anyway that the pandemic and the vaccines were likewise pushed on American people, not because one was legitimately dangerous to them and the other was legitimately a protection, but purely for political agenda. And I can prove that too if you want to talk about it. That same agenda fuels the protests over the recent Roe v. Wade decision. That decision, by the way, did not abolish abortion, although you would get a completely wrong or different view of that if you were to watch the news. It simply gave the responsibilities to make the decision back to the states where it belongs. Then there's the so-called insurrection on January 6th. Even though not one person who entered the Capitol building on that day was carrying a gun, were actually welcomed in by the Capitol Police and were incited to do so by FBI agents who were planted in the crowd. Isn't that interesting? This all came to light very recently. Not one Capitol Police officer was harmed, yet the media continued to push the narrative that as many as six of them were killed by these so-called insurrectionists. Only one person was actually killed. She was an unarmed woman who was shot in the neck by one of the guards without provocation. But of course, that's not in the news. I could give more examples, but I think you get the idea. People desperately want certain conditions that are not true to be true, to, 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 to be reality. But that isn't reality. Rather than just admit it and believe the evidence, uh, they would rather fabricate a false narrative for their own ends. This happens all the time, and, and not just on the national level. In every aspect of life, there, this has been happening for the past seven years now on, on a grand scale with such frequency on the part of the government that it is unsettling to those who have to submit to it. 
but we have to submit to it. Where is the wisdom in all of this, we cry. Even citizens who are entrenched in this false approach for their own selfish ends would tell you that this is actually not the way it is when it really is that way. Now, anything, now any thinking sane person would admit that it is a tragic way to live a tragic way, whether we're talking about, again, politicians and government or citizens and in, every, in everyday life, it's indeed tragic to go through life living under false pretenses, making something that is not the case appear true. The sage addresses this very troubling approach to life in our next section, and he reveals it for what it is, a sham with the hope, of course, that he might deliver those caught up in it before it's too late. The way that he does this is to engage in honest inquiry that is open to every person under the sun or on the earth. So let's see how he does this. We'll look together. If you are in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 18. Just by way of review... Those of you especially who weren't with us past few weeks, we, we, saw that the, we saw the sage's introduction to the book in verses 1 and 2 where he states his thesis right up front. And that is that there is nothing new or fresh that breaks into life and brings value or gain to human experience. Rather bleak. That's his, that's his thesis. His phrase under the sun, which he coined himself, is his way of capturing life on earth that is not lived under God. And that is to say, not lived in union with God, out of a personal covenant relationship with God. Of course, all of us, both Christians and non-Christians alike, are certainly under God in the sense that we cannot escape his sovereign rule on this earth. And the sage will make that point later on in our text this morning. Uh, that's not in, in question. But not all of us in this world are in union with God. Not everyone enjoys a covenant relationship with him. And for those who don't, the sage declares that there is no valued gain for all their toil in life. No just compensation for a lifetime of work, sacrifice, and hardship. Hard to believe. But that's his thesis and we'll go on to prove it. He will as he goes. He does this first with some analogies from nature. You might remember last time in our study of verses 3 to 11, which was the focus of our last study, and he sharpens his focus now. He goes from the, the world of nature, and he directs our attention to the many and varied human pursuits themselves in order to show that there's nothing Nothing of any lasting value. A section will stretch into chapter 2 where he will examine the pursuit of pleasure or hedonism or wealth, materialism, and wisdom or intellectualism, and of course labor or industrialism. We'll get to those in the coming weeks. But as a preface to searching those human pursuits together. He begins in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, with the actual search itself. 
the search for whether life is worth all the trouble to live, and whether there is a lasting return for all of one's toil and labor in a lifetime. Now we consider this search now, and I have uh, uh, done uh, a um, I've, I've done the work in giving you or publishing in your bulletin an outline. And uh, we'll try and follow that as close as we as close as we can. There are six items, and the first one is the seeker. We're talking about those who do the search, the seeker, the seeker himself, the one who engages in this investigation. If he is in earnest and really cares to know the truth about what lasting reward or gain there is to life. He must be honest and serious. This is the seeker. He needs to be honest and, and serious. He needs to be prepared to, be, to become an expert, actually, on matters of life. I remember the time that I was a young PhD student at Cambridge University in the UK. There were many things that I had to get used to there, living in a foreign country, but the most overwhelming task that I faced was having to produce something original in my dissertation. That was one of the stipulations for, for being accepted to the university. Something that had not actually been stated ever before. <laughs> now that's rather a daunting task, given the fact that I was standing on the other side of millennia of research and writing. How was I supposed to pull, off, pull that off? Well, what happens actually in these instances is that your dissertation winds up being 90% borrowed and 10% original. In other words, they produce new spins on an old theme. Be that as it may, I became an expert on my subject because I spent the next three and a half years on it. That's all I did. I read, I wrote, I read some more, and then wrote some more, and I kept doing that over and over again. Everything significant to my thesis regarding my subject, I knew technically better than anyone else at that time. Because of the concentrated research that I had to conduct, which involved, of course, considering the views of other authorities, evaluating my findings, and drawing my conclusions. Now, that was a humbling place for me to be, but it was nevertheless true. I was an expert on that field. Now, those who entered into an even greater search for the meaning and value of their lives and are serious about it, they will be about this kind of inquiry in the sense that they will be honest with themselves in all that they find, objective in their fact-finding, and they will get rid of all bias in making right conclusions. That is the serious seeker. This is exactly what the sage did. He became an expert. He said, I, the preacher, verse 12, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. Now, up to this point in the narrative, the sage has represented himself as a Solomon-like figure. We've already argued this before. Since Solomon had a reputation of being the wisest man who had ever lived, and in verses 1 to 11, the sage speaks of himself this way, as a Solomon-like figure, in the third person. 
he did this, he did that, he knew this, etc. Third person. But now, <coughs> in verse 12, he switches to the first person, referring to himself as the sage, which is simply another way to call attention to his credentials and have the right to speak authorita authoritatively on living life. After all, he is wisdom personified, remember? His alias as king shows that he's coming at life from the most authoritative and privileged position there ever was. As he says in chapter 2, verse 12 later, he says, For what will the man who will come after the king accept what has already been done? What will the man do who comes after the king except what the king's already done? Well, nothing. Because the king does it, and that's it. king has done it all. There's no one more qualified then to speak to the issues of life than the sage. That's verse 12. That's the seeker. We come then next to the means of his search. The means of his search. He employs a thorough investigation by means of wisdom. He says in verse 13, And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom about everything that's been done under, the, under heaven. In an effort to determine then whether life promises anything lasting or reliable, he conducts a search by means of wisdom. Now this wisdom is not biblical wisdom. Let me just tell you that right up front. That is wisdom or truth that comes from God's revealed word that one appropriates with the assistance of the Holy Spirit. That is not what he's talking about here. Rather, human wisdom is what he's talking about, and that is sourced in the human heart. It applies what one learns from life's experiences. The sage restricts himself at this point to using human wisdom, since that's the only kind of wisdom that life under the sun, with no room for God in it, knows. It's wisdom that makes observation from a fallen condition, using the powers of observation from a fallen mind, and then on the basis of one's own ideas and imagination, interpreting those observations for practical life. That's human wisdom. And that's it. Now, as inferior to biblical wisdom as that is, and we'll have more to say on that in a few moments, Human wisdom is enough. Listen very carefully. Human wisdom is enough to make a right conclusion about the whole matter of whether there is any valued gain to all my living on this earth. I want you to stick that away because this is going to become important in just a few moments. So the sage will demonstrate this later in specifics in chapter 2, with the wealth and the pleasure and the labor and so on. Now, number three, the nature of this search, the nature. Well, we come to the nature of it. That means the essence of this search. We know that it's based on human wisdom. Um, what else do people on earth who, who, uh, who reject the Bible have? They don't have anything but human wisdom. But did you know that this search is actually something that people find irresistible. This is what the nature of this search is all about. It's irresistible. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean that every person feels the need to consider the meaning of life. We read on in verse 13, if uh, it is a sorry task 
with which God has given the sons of mankind to be troubled. Isn't that an interesting verse? That's the New American Standard translation, but it, it's not as accurate as I would like it to be. The translation sorry is really too soft. The Hebrew word there is evil. Now, not evil in a moral or sinful sense. It has more the idea of a bad situation. In other words, this extensive searching out by a wise and thorough investigation is not really a positive endeavor at all. Not if the one searching is honest with himself and lets the facts speak. Now, why would the search for meaning and value to life ever be a bad one? Or thought to cause all kinds of trouble, as the verse goes on to say. Well, the sage tells us up front, as he himself is being honest with his readers, those especially who are skeptical and are estranged from God's truth. It's simply this, honest, precise, and unbiased investigation will lead one to the reality that is both sobering and sad. And we'll see that in a few moments. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. What the sage emphasizes in this part of the verse is the fact that such a search is irresistible. It is so because God imposed it on all human beings. How do you like that? Now, that's not to say that everyone in the world engages in purposeful, rigorous, academic exploration, making computations and statistical analysis as if they were writing a dissertation on the subject. No. Now, there are those who do that. They are the experts. But I mean that the search to know and appreciate life's value and gain is innate with all human beings. The last part of the verse, to be troubled, or as some versions have it, to be afflicted with, is also a poor translation. The Hebrew word uh, used there, by the way, it's used only in Ecclesiastes, and it really means in this context, occupation. God has imposed this occupation on people, this task. That's what the sage is saying. He has imposed humanity with this unpleasant and toilsome task of searching out the meaning to life. And that's obvious just by the common longings that everyone has to know truth about life and, and the common nagging question whether it's worth all the trouble and the hardship to live it. Sure, you've talked to people about this. But is it really an imposition that God has given us? Well, not in the sense that God purposely decreed that he would make people suffer by causing them restless, uh, wrestle, to wrestle endlessly over the meaning of life. No, we, we know that while God decrees all kinds of situations for the purpose of bringing about his desired ends, the Bible tells us clearly that God is a loving, compassionate God who would rather see those who reject him repent and turn to him for salvation rather than suffer, suffer through life and wind up in a place of eternal judgment. We know that. That's, that's the nature of God. So in what sense does the sage mean that God imposed this search on, on all human beings? In the sense that this strong desire to know a natural consequence of, of, of their fallen state that is all the more exacerbated by living in a foreign 
a fallen world that God sovereignly controls. That's what he means. You see, God created Adam as a working being who would keep the garden, procreate, rule and subdue the earth, and represent the Lord. And that kind of work was of great gain, great value. But with the fall, humanity humanity has lost interest in that kind of godly industry. And actually, humanity is unable to do it. Yet they are still working beings with an inclination to produce and a desire to see great gain. That didn't go away with the fall. They are driven by this innate desire to enjoy great gain in life as they were created to. But now, now they find none in a fallen world. And this is the frustration. That brings us to consider the results of such a search. This search, by the best means of human wisdom, reveals that there is, in fact, no value gained to life because the world is subject to the absolute and unchangeable will of God. That's what verses 4 and 15 say. Let's op- let me open that up for you. The sage says in verse 14, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is futility and striving after the wind. Well, we just established a moment ago that, that God made man and woman with an innate desire to see value and gain in life of honest work, and that this innate desire is still there after the fall, but without the ability to achieve it. So their desire for it is never satisfied because they live in a fallen world. God has ordered it in an absolute and unchangeable way that will keep them from finding lasting gain. Look at verse 15. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Sage will repeat this little proverb again in chapter 7, verse 13. He said, consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? Rhetorical question, the answer is no one. In both contexts, the sage says that God has decreed all things in life, including the consequences of sin that plunged humanity into total depravity and creation into a ruinous state. The chaos and unpredictability and unmanageable, unjust, unfair, and bizarre context that life is littered with, they are part of those consequences of sin, and they cannot be eradicated. You can't live around them. You can't ignore them. You can't make them go away. You can't manage them. There are certain realities in life, beloved, that cannot be denied or overturned. We call them facts of life. And and as, as miserable as many of them are, we cannot avoid them. They're there to stay. We never know when they're coming, but they come, sometimes in greater frequency in some seasons than in others. And to think that you can control your environment, your life, is like, well, chasing after the wind. What a great metaphor that is. Just think about that. Can anyone command or grab the wind? Well, I know of one man. We'll talk about him in a little bit. You may realize that this conclusion is so counterintuitive to people today. It's counterintuitive. 
No one wants to hear this. They, they don't want to believe it, much less listen to it. But it comes from their own experience, which they cannot deny either. And that brings us to the status of this search in verse 16. Verse 16 brings up this, what, 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 it brings up with greater force what verse 12 already stated, that he was the king of Jerusalem. He said, I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. So what we have here is the status of the search. In other words, the kind of search this is, is the best that humanity can produce. It's par excellence, testimony to the most thorough investigation that could ever be had under the sun. Sad results of such an extensive and honest search by means of human wisdom comes from the wisest that humanity can produce. Do you see that? The wisest. This is, this is not the foolish. This is the wisest. We explain in our introduction that the sage writes in the wisdom tradition of Solomon, right? Borrowing Solomon's status as the wisest man on earth. And we might add the wealthiest to give authority to his words here. Solomon was King David's son and heir to the Lord uh, to the to the throne and once he occupied the throne we're told in 1 Kings chapter 3 that he he asked God for wisdom and and God expressed in his reply to Solomon how pleased he was that Solomon didn't ask for 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 uh uh riches or revenge on his enemies he asked for wisdom so God grants this request and by the way gave him riches and honor beyond what any king had ever had or would have anyway. It was all such a, a wonderful communion between God and Solomon, but it wouldn't last. And 1 Kings 11 is among the saddest chapters in the Old Testament. 1 Kings 11. We're told there that Solomon disobeyed the Lord by marrying not one foreign woman, which was an abomination to God, but he married many. And then it says, verse 4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. More specifically, Solomon became a follower of the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. The bottom line is that Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 6, and did fall, didn't follow the Lord fully as his father David had done. The end of this chapter, 1 first, first, uh, first Kings 11, it states that he died and his son Rehoboam took over. There is no mention or even a hint that Solomon repented of his wickedness. According to what we read here, there is more reason to believe that Solomon was an apostate than a true believer. I don't know. At the very least, it would appear that he shipwrecked his faith. So why? Why would a sage appeal to Solomon, who on the one hand was the wisest man to have ever lived, 
but made foolish mistakes that shipwrecked his faith. Well, isn't it obvious? To show that if the wisest man on earth could not seem to find, let alone appreciate, any valued gain in life after all of his sinful escapades, well, then how could anyone less wise than he find valued gain? Right? This is the best there is. Humanity, it's, it's, it's humanity's best. Here is a man that had the wealth of wisdom, which implies a wealth of truth as well, since wisdom is applied truth. And yet, he lived like a fool, and he died in his sins. And that brings us to consider finally the limitations of this search in verse eight, 17 and 18. It says, and I applied my mind to know wisdom and to know insanity and foolishness. I realized that this also is a striving after the wind because in much wisdom there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Even the wisest human, according to the world's standards, who puts his mind to searching out life under the sun by the wisest course of action, including what is, what is wisdom itself and what is foolishness. His search brings him to a tragic end with a great deal of anguish. There's nothing that lasts forever. There's nothing that is reliable, nothing that I can hold on to that brings lasting valued gain to my life. All is futile. It's a chasing after the wind. Second little proverb here sums up the frustration and the pain that comes with these search results. And it's this. The more that you discover, the more you realize that you just scratch the surface. In fact, Aristotle said, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Oh, and by the way, the sage actually said it long before Aristotle, right here in verse 18. He says, in much wisdom, there's much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. But it's true, no matter who said it. Do you agree? I remember my first semester at Bible college. I was just a baby Christian who was in earnest about learning all I possibly could about the Bible. And after just a semester of learning, I was overwhelmed with how much knowledge there was ahead of me. I realized that the more I came to understand about Bible and theology, the more ignorant I was at it all. It was a humbling experience, to say the least. We all have been to those points in various contexts. And we can appreciate the sage's proverb. He speaks as a fellow human being and from honesty. It's true. It resonates with us. Humanity's wisest is forced to admit that even his pursuit of wisdom and foolishness leads to frustration and pain. Well, as we pull the lens back on this passage... We see a challenge, first and foremost, to those who live under the sun, outside a relationship with God, who have only human wisdom at their disposal. 
Sage's words challenge them to follow up on their innate desire to want to know whether there is advantage and valued gain to all their labor in a lifetime, though uh, through honest inquiry. He promises that they will be forced to conclude when it's done that there is none. But that's actually a good place to be. It's better than in a fantasy world. What do I mean by that? All search for value gain in life, all of all people do this in their own way. But very few engage in a bona fide search. Do you know what I mean by that? They may even seek out those wiser than they for answers, as fallen humanity looks to its wisest for authoritative word. We can call them experts. They're highly sought out or sought after in most areas of corporate and professional world. Does he have a degree? Is he from an Ivy League college? How many books to his name? Where Where is he taught? Humanity esteems practitioners like these. And there are all kinds out there that have moved out of their academics into specific professions. That's why you'll often find landscaping firms hiring PhDs in horticulture or, or, or extermination companies hiring PhDs in entomology. Well, who are the experts on life, by the way? Well, they are the psychologists, of course. Psychology is the study of the soul. Did you know that? Who better than they would be able to tell us if there's any compensation to all our hard work in life? Just to refresh your memories, when I say compensation, I mean exactly what the New Oxford Dictionary means. That which counterbalances or makes up for an undesirable or unwelcome state of affairs. So when people find life unpleasant and hard and undesirable circumstances mounting and they want to know, is it all worth enduring? The experts say, yes, it is all worth it. Don't despair. Life is worth its pain and aggravation and so are you. And then they go on to explain that there's great reward in blaming your troubles on your environment or great liberty to know that nothing is ever your fault. Now, I would think that such professional practitioners of the soul, being in such high demand and highly sought after, possess some kind of supernatural faculties, a sixth supernatural sense, uh, an in with fate itself, by the way they are hailed and received by the masses. But truth is, truth is, they have no more than human wisdom at their disposal, and they abuse even that. They don't apply it honestly and without bias. It's tainted. And their so-called experts' advice, uh, advice is, is, is no more valid than, than they are. They're, they're not interested in honest inquiry. And they're the inescapable conclusion that it will reveal. No, they're interested in making money off their credentials. And so they will create a world for you, the kind you're looking for. That's the fantasy world. Now, here's a realistic, a real statistic that you may not have heard before. In the professional field of psychology, there are hundreds, and that's no exaggeration, hundreds of psychological paradigms that exist at the same time and claim to be the authority on life, and none of them agrees with the other. Is that remarkable? 
Freud disagrees with Jung. Jung disagrees with Adler. Adler disagrees with Skinner. Skinner disagrees with Collins. And on and on it goes. This is why some have refused to call professional psychology a discipline, because by definition, a discipline has universally accepted principles. Well, you won't find that in profession of psychology. Here's another statistic that's even scarier. Every year, a few hundred of these psychological paradigms that people base their lives on are replaced by new ones. Yes. And as sad as all that is, sadder still is the fact that people will continue to put their faith in world's psychological gurus and pay them exorbitant amounts of money just to hear them say, you matter. And all your hard work and the difficulties in life that you endure will give back to you. But it's a sham. So we have a depressing state of affairs with both the experts on the soul and the average folks who convince themselves that there is gain and, and live the rest of their lives deceived. They refuse to conduct honest inquiry into the meaning of life. They are afraid of the conclusions. They don't want to go there. And, and, and the fact that they, they want to be satisfied with a positive conclusion proves what the sage says about this desire being innate. It's inescapable. People want to believe that life is worth living. They want to believe it so badly that they'll avoid honest inquiry. They'll not take the sage up on his challenge, but rather they will continue to search endlessly for gain that they believe is due them, at times even making themselves believe that they have attained it. They live in a fantasy world no more real than the illusions that a magician creates on a stage. For one to live in a world that is subject to the absolute will of God, one has to know and deeply love God, or else that one remains empty in his soul and bound by an overbearing desire to make sense out of and find worth in life. And whether they set about the task of doing it so deliberately and consciously, their whole lives are lived for the happiest state of affairs. If they're honest with themselves and trace their findings to their logical conclusions, they will discover the sad, frustrating, and painful fact that there is indeed no lasting gain to be had for all the toil of one's life under the sun that is not under God. I know a man who has become obsessed with discovering the truth about the meaning of life. If there's any gain to be had in life under the sun, he reads hours a week constantly wanting to know the meaning of life and who might have the authoritative word. Years, years, he has spent reading many of the cults, of the religions, of the philosophers, reading old stuff, reading new stuff. Still his search goes on for who might have the truth. I had a conversation with this person on one occasion. He had criticized me for devoting my entire life to studying one book, the Bible. 
How do you know that there's not something more out there, that, that's re that real truth about life, that, that it's not found somewhere else? How do you know? And after spending a good amount of time proving my case that the Bible is God's absolute truth on the basis of the real reliability of the biblical text and the historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead and the tomb was empty, I asked him a question. It had to do with his search and his method of inquiry. I said, if, as you claim, there is absolute truth regarding morality and spirituality somewhere out there, outside the Bible, and you simply need to continue reading everything possible in order to find it, how will you know when you found it? In other words, how will you determine who has the right view on life? You? If, for sake of argument, you could read everything that's ever been written, how do you find, then, and determine absolute truth? So after letting that sink in for a while, I then asked this. So you become the authority or judge on what is absolute truth, right? And if that's the case, then absolute truth really lies with you. Since you are the final judge and arbiter of what is right, how is that wise? I thought at that, uh, I thought about Adam at that instant disobeying God's living absolute word for a taste of divinity, only to wind up with knowledge that he was naked and feeling very ashamed. Awful lot just for that. The young man continues his search for meaning of life. And I believe that it is because he doesn't want to deal with reality. He wants a different reality. Sage recorded his experiment, you understand, and he and, and we'll see it uh, in and we'll see it in fuller form as we read on, because it's an important part of seeing life as it really is without room for God in it. But remember he He's talking to his son, right? Remember that? At the very end, he, he talks to his son, whom he addresses. And it was important for his son to see what life is like that is lived outside of a relationship with God. And it is important for all who fit that description to see it too. And if people are honest with themselves and the in investigative inquiry that the sage provides for them here they're not only forced to admit that life is futile and ends tragically for them, but they are in a great position to realize it and that it doesn't have to be that way. There is hope. Sage will go on to talk about it later, but we could talk about it now, but from another part of the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We heard it read this morning in our Scripture reading, the Apostle Paul speaks about the fantasy world that unbelievers create for themselves by denying honest inquiry and how God counters it with real wisdom. His own wisdom, wisdom from above the sun. What life is really about, how it should be lived, and the gain for those who live it that can be that can that can 
that can be had is all summed up. It's all epitomized in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And God made it attainable for us to have through the cross. The cross which is the foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved by it is the power of God. It's through the cross that God will confound the wisdom of the world, the worldly wise. Christ, Paul says, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And it is with this truth that Paul says, where is the wise person? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? The answer is yes. So where do they go then to know the truth? Well, there is hope. Paul goes on to say, since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, but God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. If you want to enjoy lasting and valued gain even now, as you live under the sun, you need to embrace Christ. Trust his redeeming work. To be known and know God, you see, is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of eternal life that is the ultimate gain for those under the sun who turn to Christ. Father, we're grateful for this word from Ecclesiastes. So much more to come, but so much profound truth here in just this little passage. We pray that you will impress upon us the importance of seeing life from the vantage point of above the sun. We're grateful that there are those here who know you and can do that. And we are excited to learn from Ecclesiastes how we can continue to do that and stay the course in, in life under the sun. But Lord, if there should be any who are in earshot of this, of this message, who are estranged to Christ, who live outside of a covenant relationship with him, we pray that they would that they would come to have an honest assessment of themselves, that you would grant them uh, the, uh, the eyes to see beyond their deception to the way life really is, that they may cry out to you for life, uh, life that is gain, and the reward that comes with it in eternity. We know that you alone can do this, and we pray that you will reach into the heart, the very recesses of the soul of individuals, and that you will have your way there for your glory, for your honor, for the benefit of your church, and the benefit of the sinner. And we thank you, Lord, for this hope, and we pray that, that as we go forward, 